Warning, Mombies will discuss information regarding true crime or other topics that are spooky in nature. This may be offensive to some listeners. For more information on the potential trigger warnings in this episode, please review our show notes and be cautious when listening. I'm Beth. I'm Christina. And I'm Holly. And we're the Mombies. great question weird just just absolutely strange how do you even do that i feel like that's gotta mean something hello spooky humans welcome back to the mommy's podcast i'm beth i'm holly and we're recording in the morning hey morning this is so weird i'm hoping it means we're gonna be like ready to go lots yeah. of good discussion they're spunky um yeah like my children good. spent the night at their grandparents house last night so i woke up this morning and there was no children here so that was that sounds lovely glorious um uh, my children <laughs> <laughs> so my son had an ear infection 10 days ago 11 days ago was on amoxicillin then uh like this is saturday so like tuesday of this week wednesday of this week uh at midnight my son started throwing up threw up all over my room that was fun it was blueberries so it was a great time uh then my daughter my oldest woke up at uh like 3 a.m she started throwing up so they were throwing up until the morning basically um middle sister i took to school she's my four-year-old she was fine warned the teachers just in case came home they were just sick all day then my son's still on his amoxicillin uh, for his ear infection. And then yesterday, he woke up with a rash. And it took me a bit to realize that my, my oldest is allergic to penicillin. And it turns out he is as well. So his poor little face is... And it, does it take that long? Yeah, Sometimes so it can take that long to show up? It's a sensitivity and not a true allergy. Yeah. So a true allergy, he would have had an anaphylactic right. reaction. Okay, okay, okay. Um, but it's a sensitivity. So it takes... So with Sophia, it was exactly the same way. It was like... Eight days in, no reason she should have something. All of a sudden, she wakes up with this rash. I actually found the picture of her so I could show it to the doctor because it looked the same. And even that, I went in and I talked to the nurse, who our nurse is amazing. And I talked to her and she said the rash, no, I don't think it's an allergy because it should look like a pinpoint rash. That's what amoxicillin looks like. And then three seconds later, the doctor comes in and is like, everyone thinks that amoxicillin is a pinpoint rash if you're allergic, but it's not. (laughs) It's hives. This is an allergy. So I was like, okay, well, yeah, I figured that's what it was. It looks just like Sophia's. So, um, so he's got, uh, he's on Zyrtec to get rid of the reaction. I showed Holly a picture of him, his poor little face no. and he's itchy and miserable from the hives. But, um, my husband's picking up, um, steroids for him this morning. Cause he's not, he just didn't get better enough overnight that we feel like he doesn't need them. So right. we're starting that today. That'll be fun. You'll have to get whatever. We were talking to Jenna. Hello, Jenna. Hello, Jenna. We were talking to her on the phone earlier, and she gave you some good advice. You should, she's so smart about those yeah. types of things with what, what field she's in. Yes. So I had to make sure I texted her to get mm-hmm. that, because so, I've definitely already forgotten what <laughs> she said. Well, see, now I've said it, so well, it'll help us remember. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so that's that's what's happening in my house. Oh, my four-year-old shit on the couch this morning. Oh, she now has that's a bit, That's a good one. That's yeah. a good time. Um, so that's my house, but Holly... Holly got to go do fun stuff last night. 
Oh my so. god. So my husband and I we go see quite a few comedians. Mm-hmm. Um at least the the more popular ones, ones that have been around for a while, like when you see David Spade and uh, Rob Schneider, all those people. So last night was Adam Sandler, which is so I was talking about it. So he's probably top three mm-hmm. for me, just for like actor or okay. just whatever. Top three of like your favorite, my favorites. Okay. So not just comedians or whatever, more yeah. I guess like actors because yeah. his he does in so many fucking movies. Oh yeah, but that also includes his and he's comedy. versatile. I mean, of course, his comedy is amazing. But he's versatile. So Jim Carrey is number one. I know you guys are just dying. You're like, please fucking tell yeah, me your top three Hollywood. We need to know. They want to know. So us. Jim Carrey, we're gonna meet someday, and he's just gonna love me. I know it. And <laughs> all the time I look, I'm like, we look on that like a cameo thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. come on. <laughs> so Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, oh, Robin Williams, and then Adam Sandler, for sure. Robin That's Williams okay. and Jim Carrey, guys, they were real close. Yeah. Real close. Robin Williams was one that when he passed away, I like, you know, you get sad when when actors and stuff die, mm-hmm. which I know there are some people that think it's stupid. And if you do, then go fuck off. Right. And then then this isn't for you. Right. But we are obviously it, not the same. Right. It's it's so, you know, there are people like like when Corey Haim died, because I had the biggest mm-hmm. crush on Corey Haim. He was like one of my first crushes. It fucking destroyed me. I still thought I was going to marry him <laughs> in my 30s. And um, he was still single. So it's possible that it could have happened. But um Robin Williams is one that, of course, I loved him, but I just never realized or thought that it would hit me as hard as it did when he died. Like, I still can't see anything about him without tearing up. I literally cried. We cried. I'm pretty sure Tony cried. Like, I, and I think the same thing. When I watch his movies, I'm just like, oh. Mm -hmm. And then his story, and then thinking back about, and this happens to lots of comedians, about how depressed he was even in his young years, and and that that's kind of what fueled him being on stage for so long, and and doing what he did. I just, oh my god. Well, you never, like, you hear stories sometimes about actors, and you're like, what a dick, but every story I hear about him is just that he's such a, he was such a kind and genuine and caring human. He used to hire, every movie he was on, he would hire homeless people to help on the set. And I'm just like, well, of course you did. Right. Of course, of course you did. did. And for for me, I'm especially in our younger years, like right. grew up with this man. Yeah. I watched Mrs. Doubtfire ten thousand billion times. Like, oh. oh my gosh. He was like our TV dad. Right. Because he was so fun and nice yeah. and like all this oh wow oh. Williams. Okay. So now that I just took away, I took that in a totally different direction. Adam Sandler. Back Adam then. Sandler. <laughs> so we see Didn't lots of shows by far. My most favorite comedy show I've ever seen. Really? It was amazing. We sat on the floor. We were only eight rows back, so it was just, like, fucking right there. So that definitely changed the whole atmosphere of it. But he was hilarious. Some of the stories that he tells just are so fucking ridiculous. Mm -hmm. He talked about a fucking balloon for... The longest time, I'm not going to say much of it because I don't want to get sued, but right. just this whole story about a conversation with him in a balloon. Like, it, oh my God. Oh my God. Nice. And he did this whole, I know, and I didn't realize too, he already had like a Farley song mm-hmm. out. Um, yeah. And I assume this was probably the same one, but he was like five minutes long and they had these big screens where they just played all mm. these little clips, like with no sound because right. Sandler's singing, but right. all these clips where you're seeing their mouths move of these different episodes on SNL and pictures of him with Adam Sandler and I was just like I literally I know my eyes were so full of tears I was just like "Ah!" 
out and he's singing this like funny yet romantic song about right. his relationship with his friend I and seeing them together and I was just like this is really nice well I'm tearing up in the basement I know so it was I have to show you some of it I'm I just like him. he he just is so awesome it is awesome it was very cool and I was like I want to go see him again I don't yeah. even care if it's the exact same fucking show right I want to go see him again oh that's awesome so my I I have not seen Adam Sandler. I have not been that fortunate. But my favorite comedy show I've seen probably, I'm going to go with a tie because I just, I don't think I can pick between them. They're both so good. Was uh, either Margaret Cho. I saw her when I was like 20 or something like that. She was so fucking funny. And um, Hal Sparks. Hal Sparks is, I, I adore him. So he was in Queer as Folk. Okay, you should. I will. I own it. Okay, well, perfect. Um, You can watch that. Uh, And he was, what you would probably recognize him from immediately is Dude, Where's My Car? He Uh, was Zoltan. Oh, yes. Zoltan. Uh, He's also a a musician, very talented musician, and he's fucking hilarious. Okay. He's the one, we met him. Oh, He's on the helium. And my husband felt like it was important to let him know that I used to have his half-naked poster on my wall. And I was like, well, you fucking stop it! He's like, he knows that his poster's in people's rooms. And I was like, he didn't have to know that it was in mine <laughs> while I was standing there trying to fucking talk to this man, jackass. He's like, just so you know, she wants your dick. Right. He's, I think he's married, um, but he's he's adorable and hilarious and his show is so good. So I don't know, I would, I'd have to say it was probably tied between the two of them. I've never seen Adam Sandler though, so... Well, um, so uh, the one thing I wanted to say this morning, I, I, I'm going to cry probably. Um, but uh, so we now uh, a few months ago, we had a discussion um, about our business and about some things, which we're not going to get into here on the on the um, podcast. But I uh, talked to Holly about something that was really important to me. Which we just had a meeting about this morning. OK. And I was like, um, uh. and when we had when we had that talk. Holly and I felt differently about it. And so um, I just wanted to say thank you. Because when we talked about it, sometimes you tell people things that are important to you and they go, okay, and then that's it. It doesn't matter that it was important to you. And I just wanted to say that I really appreciate I'm feeling very, very grateful this morning because there's nothing like driving down the highway listening to Andy Grammer with the sun shining to make you feel incredibly grateful. And so um, I just was really thankful that it, because it mattered to me, it mattered to you. And you took the time to think about it and to see how you felt about it. And you did end up coming to the same conclusion I came to, but that's not why it matters. It matters to me that it mattered to you because it mattered to me, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to say thank you. You're welcome. And I love you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, all right. I felt like everyone needed to hear that I was thankful for you. Oh, so you're just, so sweet. Um now we're gonna talk about horrible stuff well i'm already crying guys so i'm ready to go we're ready so uh we are talking about a totally different kind of case today so there's that um uh and i i I don't want to be the podcast that like only covers stuff when there's a holiday or whatever we are going to talk about holidays on all of our episodes now because it's just fun but it just happened um, we're doing it i also don't want to be the podcast that like last year we did um for june we did uh Cases that affected, yeah, pride cases. And so we don't want to be the podcast that only covers those things when those things happen because we don't only care about what happens to LGBTQ plus people in 
fucking June. We don't only care about what happens to black people in fucking February. Right. But I still also, it's hard not to think about those things when you, when those things come up. It's hard not to go, oh, Valentine's Day, this case, or, oh, it's, it's February. It's Black History Month. We should talk about this. It's just hard not to do that. So those things will come up, but I just, I just wanted to say, like, we're not, we're not only doing that. That's not what we're doing. We care all the time, but we are still going to honor you and be respectful. And when those times come around, there will be those cases also. Sometimes. And and I think also like this podcast, I think I told you this last, I told, then I told somebody, this podcast is basically just, just my stream of consciousness like what what oh that case oh yeah and then i go over to that shiny thing and oh that case over there like yeah i mean it's whatever i'm interested in covering right now so if i wasn't interested not interested but if it wasn't the thing that caught my attention today then it's not the case i'm covering right now yeah it just is what it is because uh, because you're doing research you have to be focused so it just so happens that i think i mentioned on the patrons uh episode for december that my husband mentioned doing you know, oh, it's a shame you didn't do some case in October or something. And I said, oh, you know, I could do this. Could be in a Christmas massacre, which we did for the patrons. So if you're not a patron, you can hear that on Patreon. Get over there. Um, and, but when he mentioned that, this case immediately came to mind. And I was like, yep, I'm going to cover that. So uh, in honor of Valentine's Day, I thought we would discuss a Valentine's murder or seven. Oh, my God. So we're taking it back to 1920s Chicago. Oh, shit. Uh, We'll be discussing the mob. So I'm going to go into the background of Chicago's most notorious gangster, because we can't really talk about this case without discussing what led up to it. But I have tried to keep it as brief as possible, because obviously we're talking about the mob. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot to talk about. Um, And when you're talking about organized crime, there's just a lot of moving parts. So I tried to keep it as brief as I could, but there's just so much interesting stuff there. I had a hard time. I hope you guys enjoy uh, i'm just thinking about it already and you researching it and what i would be like like all of a sudden i would just be lost in this la la land where i yeah. created this vision of like me being in the mob <laughs> in the 1920s or like what that fucking had to be like to be like a part of something that they did take care of each other there were yeah. probably like good parts just yeah. in the wrong ways but then realizing also like oh i love these people but realizing that it, you also can't leave them right or you're dead right well you know and it's <laughs> like like we're obviously we're talking about we're gonna be talking about al capone um and you hear i watched a documentary and when you hear the people in there talking about him there were people in there even saying like he was a good man or he did right. this or that because mm-hmm. one that's the image he wanted to portray but two he did do good things it's not like when you have bad people, good things can exist in them. Right. Or, and I'm not saying this is the case with him. Maybe he had good things in him. Or there are people who are abusers who pretend to be good. So, you know, being a human is a giant spectrum of emotions and of Ugh. what we are. So there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, and I, there were a lot of things I had in here that I deleted because I was like, okay, that doesn't really fit right. or whatever. But there's a lot of information. So I have all my my sources. Like, I talked about them in here. It's so fucking interesting. So if it's something you're into, like, please go go look at it because it's real, real, real interesting. But um, um, I, I actually was excited because my favorite murder, which is who I'm listening to right now, I'm trying to get all the way to the present with all theirs, and I'm, like, in 2019, so I still have a ways to go. But they say they would never cover mob stuff because they're just not interested in it. 
which you know is totally fine obviously we can all be interested in different things but i was so absorbed in this i just was like well i didn't think i'd be this right i want to watch all the mob shows like now i'm in it so (laughs) you're like i'm doing it i'm so into it so um well maybe it changed my mind too because i'm not super in it either i think this one i thought this one was at least pretty interesting so hopefully at least i do a good job so at least you'd be interested in this one okay so are you ready for the saint valentine's day massacre i'm ready okay Alphonse Capone was born January 17th, 1899 in Brooklyn, New York. At a young age, he joined gangs, he stole, he fought. Uh, He dropped out of school in the sixth grade after slapping a teacher and getting beaten by the principal. Holy shit. I think he might be my cousin. My brother definitely did some shit like that. Can you just imagine that that, back then that was something that happened way more often of kids just dropping out of school at that young of an age. Being adults and be like, I only finished fifth grade. What the the fuck? I think my mom only finished eighth grade. Um, she was having babies, so, you know. She was busy. She was, yeah. Uh, anyway, so Capone uh, tried working honest jobs, like working in a munitions factory, as a pin setter in a bowling alley, and as a cloth cutter in a book bindery. But that life didn't really suit him. As a side hustle, Al worked as a bouncer at Yale's Bar in Coney Island, and that's where he got his first taste of mob life. Now, this bar was also the place where an 18-year-old Capone got the scars that would earn him the nickname Scarface. Al, which I didn't even realize uh, that, that was his nickname, right. by the way. I mean, I knew that part, but I didn't know, like, why. Are you ready? This yeah. one, I was like, oh, this story has to go in there. It has nothing to fucking do with anything I'm talking about, but it has to be. So Al walked up to a table there when he was, I guess when he was working. He bent over and told a girl named Lena loudly enough for the next table to hear, quote, honey, you got a beautiful ass. And I mean that as a compliment, really. No. Her brother, Frank Galluccio, pulled out a knife and slashed Capone's face. Holy fuck! That's right. Squeak, are you listening? That's what, that's what brothers do. This is when their sister's honor. I don't slash anybody, but you know, you could at least fucking say some shit. You got a big mouth. You could throw a punch. Holy like, crap. I was like, fuck! You'd be so scared. Like, if that one is he's willing to do over that. <laughs> right. Over. Okay. I mean, complimented your sister. Right. You said her ass. Right. I mean, oh my God. This was a long time ago, though. But That's sweet, though. Yeah. It was, I You're was like, like, oh. First of all, they have to go in there because the nickname. And also, I was like, damn, big brother. Okay. Um, as Al Capone made his way in the mob world, he became the protege, became the protege of Johnny Torrio, a member of the Five Points gang. In 1909, Torrio was invited to Chicago, Illinois to help Big Jim Colosimo. Ooh, I said it right the first time. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to forget and then totally forgot to put in the phonetic stuff. Uh, so he was going to help him control and expand his gambling dens and brothels. At the time, Big, De- Big Jim was being, I said his first name wrong. That's good. Okay. Uh, Big Jim was being extorted by the Black Hand, which is listed like it's an entity. But it's also listed like as just a method of extortion. Okay. Um, they talked about how it's kind of racist i guess is like why they called it that but obviously i didn't i don't want to get into all that but it's out there so uh, and it sounds like the black can was basically the name for the mob before it had organization and a code of conduct so this is kind of, <laughs> code of conduct. i mean they did have a code of conduct uh, i mean you know it's just like in prison with, uh, the, with uh, uh pedophiles and stuff there's, mm-hmm. there's a hierarchy and there's these are the people that are the bottom i'm sorry this is these are the rules yep, exactly. i have to i have no problem murdering people but if you do this then that's it um, as Big Jim's empire grew, more help was needed, and Johnny Torrio recruited Al Capone to be a lieutenant in the organization. In 1919, 19-year-old Capone, who had recently become a father and married a woman named May Coughlin, packed up his family and headed to Chicago. 
Uh, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution had been passed in January of that year and would go into effect on January 17th, 1920, banning the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. Prohibition was an opportunity for the mob to thrive, and Al Capone would quickly be in the driver's seat of organized crime in Chicago. At 19 years old, 19. can you fucking imagine? Now, I know that's a different time where you are thrust into adulthood way right. earlier oh, than absolutely. things are now. And But Jesus, I cannot imagine 19-year-old me. I was just oh going to say, 19-year-olds can be dicks. Yikes. And you're running the mob. And you're going to let him, like, you trust he's not right. going to fuck shit up. Yeah, right. right. Uh <laughs> So Johnny Torrio saw the potential millions that could be made during Prohibition, and he wanted to expand the illegal booze business further than Big Jim was comfortable with. I think Big Jim felt like, I'm making plenty of money. It's fine. Leave yeah. it. Uh, on May 11th, 1920, Big Jim Colosimo received a call from Johnny Torrio to let him know a shipment of beer was on the way. As Big Jim waited in Colosimo's cafe for the shipment to arrive, he exchanged pleasantries with the staff, not realizing that a gunman was hidden in the cloakroom. Big Jim was shot twice and died at the scene. Here's another really interesting thing, too. Like, the A&E biography. There are crime scene photos of all of this. <sighs> which, I, you know, I obviously can't just put those on fucking Instagram. Because everyone's not going to be okay with seeing those. But they're out there. So if, if crime scene photos are something that you're comfortable with and interested in. Like, there are photos of all of these fucking hits. Including the Valentine's Day Massacre. Out oh there where you can goodness. see them. So, um... I lost my spot because I had to say that. Uh, his murder remains unsolved, though there are theories about who could have been behind the killing, including his first wife, his second wife, and Johnny Torrio. Huh? <laughs> the most commonly accepted theory is that Johnny Torrio hired his friend Frankie Yale, the owner of Yale's bar, where Al got his uh, scars, to murder Big Jim so Torrio could take over. So that's that's what we're going to go with. That makes a, much sense. The wife ones were pretty interesting, too, though. And actually, uh, I, I don't think I included it. I didn't include it in here because it was a lot. But Johnny Torrio is Big Jim Colosimo's nephew by marriage. His aunt was Big Jim's first wife. And it was like he left the first wife, divorced her, and it was... They thought maybe it was also kind of a revenge on him for, you know... I'm dissing his aunt. I don't know. I'm not kind of Which is crazy. Back. You're talking about 1920s and there's a lot of divorce already. Like, what? Yeah. You usually don't see that. Yeah. Or I guess um, you do a lot. I don't know what you see. I don't know anything about that. That was an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but that never happened back then. I don't fucking You don't talk know. about it. I don't um, fucking know. I mean, isn't that the it thing? Just, like, marriage now. You know, back in the day, marriage was forever. Right. It just mm. seems like at that time. Yeah. Right. Or a woman not offing her husband. Policy. I mean, what the fuck are you going to do now? Because you right. can't get a job. You can't get a loan. Can't get a credit card. Can't buy a house. And find another fucking husband <laughs> right. who's hopefully better than the last one. <laughs> Except your picker's broken. So. Your picker's broken. Uh, if, so if you're interested in what was happening at the time, we're going deeper into the Capone organization. A&E has a great biography on Al Capone, which I just went on my Roku and searched for Al Capone. And it pulled up. Um, that was a primary source for this episode. I tried to stick to what was pertinent to this particular story, but it was very difficult. <laughs> so please go watch You're it. You're like, ooh, rabbit hole over there. Ooh. Go watch it. Yeah, I know. I, it was so bad. And then I'm going through the newspapers. In the newspapers, they put every step of the investigation. So I had all this stuff in there. And then I was like, well, fuck, that's not even part of the investigation. Or they'd say somebody's name and then the name would never come up again. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. So I just kept going back and deleting stuff. And I was like, this is taking me for fucking ever. So anyway. Go watch it. Uh, in 1922, Torrio was able to garner a peace agreement between the different mob factions in Chicago. So everyone would make money and they wouldn't attack each other. 
This was incredibly profitable for all involved. Estimates show they were making approximately $120 million per year. What? In 1922, which would be over $2 billion today. Shut the fuck up. That's literally so much money that I can't even comprehend how much fucking money that is. And they were making it every year. Oh, wow. Fuck. In 1920, when things cost 50 cents. Also, I guess I'll be a part of the mob. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately. All right. Sure. Okay. I just have to do what you say and don't tell anyone and you're going to have my back. Great. You'll literally kill someone I'm real good at keeping my mouth shut. And give me lots of money. Okay. Right. Okay. So good at secrets. Ugh. Um, Wow. So, of course, when that much money is in play, greed becomes a driving Mm. force. And in 1923, the peace treaty brokered by Johnny Torrio ended in a hail of bullets. As A&E's Al Capone biography described it, quote, blood flowed and bombs exploded from September to December. Wow. Once, now, they manage all of this, they get it all together, and once Torrio felt confident that these gang wars were over and control had been restored, he went on a four-month cruise, leaving Al Capone, a four-month fucking cruise, leaving Al Capone in control of the city. In 1924, Capone expanded the business into the suburbs, formed new allies, and raked in the profits, cementing his place as Torrio's eventual replacement. Wow. So at that time, he's what, 23, 24? He'd have been, he, so he's 19 in 19, so he'd be 24 years old. In wow. 24 years old, and you're like running the mob. Right. Okay. Right. Be shitting my pants. Right. I literally. <laughs> can't handle the responsibility of the podcast i don't think i could handle the fucking mob nope. wow and he's like sure I'll, i got this right I'm gonna expand it nice i'm gonna expand it fuck uh so after torio came back to chicago there were a lot of problems between the italian sicilian mob known as the chicago outfit led by torio and the irish jewish mob known as the north side gang led by okay so it said dion in some of this stuff like d-i-o-n which maybe they pronounce it dean but then most of the stuff said Dean, D-E-A-N. So I'm going to call him Dean. If that is incorrect, I apologize. But that's just what I found. So by Dean O'Banion. These different factions had been working together because of the treaty that Torrio had originally brokered. So I think once they got everything calmed down, they kind of went back to the treaty stuff, even though it ended in the gang wars. Right. Um, But that wouldn't last much longer. In February of 1924, Dean O'Banion attempted to frame Torrio and Capone for the murder of John Duffy. The attempt was unsuccessful, but was the beginning of the end of the truce. The final straw happened in May of 1924 when O'Banion learned of a planned police raid of the Sieben Brewery, of which O'Banion and Torrio were both owners. This raid would negatively affect both O'Banion and Torrio, but rather than warn Torrio, O'Banion approached him looking to sell his own share in the brewery, saying he was scared of the Jenna brothers who ran Little Italy west of downtown Chicago. O'Bannon had complained about the brothers to Torrio before, with no results on Torrio's end, so Torrio believed him, and he gave him $500,000 for his share of the brewery. On the night of the raid, O'Bannon and Torrio were both arrested. But while O'Bannon was let off easily because he had no priors, Torrio had to make his own bail, plus pay bail on six associates, and deal with court charges. Oh, shit. Now, well, the, you're making two trillion billion dollars, so you'll yeah, be but, all right. But that's ooh, that yeah, was that was ballsy. Albanian refused to give back the money that Torrio had paid him because now we've been busted. This thing is done. I'm not buying my your share because now it's over. That's it. The brewery's gone, and Torrio realized he'd been played. Uh, he'd lost the brewery. He lost the five hundred thousand dollars. 
He caught charges, and he'd been humiliated. He decided it was time to allow the Jennas, who had already expressed the desire to get rid of O'Banion. Frankie Yale, who we've already mentioned, was called on to perform the hit with two local hitmen. On November 10, 1924, Yale and the hitmen paid a visit to Dino Banyan's flower shop as he was preparing the flowers for a gangster's funeral. I think they had called in that order purposely to him. Uh, to, I think it was mm-hmm. set up that way, but I'm not, I didn't Smart. get that far into it. Uh, when they walked in, O'Banion greeted them and shook Yale's hand. Yale held on tight as the other man, men repeatedly shot O'Banion. So he literally stood there and hold his, held his fucking hand while they just shot him to death. Oh my gosh. Mm. Fucking black hearts fucking just cold. Ooh. Now, O'Banion's death sparked a bloody gang war that lasted five years. Shit. Yeah. O'Banion was replaced by George Bugs Moran and Earl Jaime Weiss. Weiss was uncontrollable. I think that was supposed to be unconsolable, but I'm not sure. After O'Banion's murder made... No, maybe it was uncontrollable. He was made crazy by his grief. He was prepared to have a shootout in the streets with O'Banion's killers. In January of 1925, he and his men attempted to avenge their boss's murder. They missed Capone, but a, which is probably the last fucking person you want to miss. Just throwing that out there. But a week later, they were able to catch Torrio by surprise waiting outside of his house. When Torrio and his wife got home from the fucking store... The gunman pounced. Toro was shot five times, and I've seen a variety of descriptions of where he was shot, but I'm going with the Chicago Tribune from that time that gives witness accounts. It said he received two in the chest, one in the abdomen, one in the chin, and one in the arm, which is actually... No, that's five. We're good. <laughs> Never mind. I, <laughs> I can't thought count. I caught that before, yeah. but that's definitely six. It's not. It's five. Uh, I can't count this early in the morning. Um... Torrio's wife told police that the gunman was reloading when he got spooked and ran off. I read in one place that he tried to shoot Torrio in the head, but the gun was empty, and that's when he ran off. They tried to make it seem like he tried to shoot him and he got saved. Yeah, I don't know, something like that. I was like, okay, whatever. (laughs) He got lucky. Uh, Either way, Torrio survived the assassination attempt. What? He survived. After he recovered, he was given nine months jail time for the charges from the Seabin Brewery raid. He served that time, and he retired, moving to Italy with his wife for a short time before returning to become consigliere or advisor to Al Capone. So now Al Capone. So he says, I'm out. Just kidding. I'm in. Right. He's like, I'm out, but I'll give you advice. Just don't fucking kill me. Um, so now, But you know that there's a fucking hit on you right. for fucking ever. Like, right. for, I think for, that's why he moved to Italy for a while, is to kind of yeah. let the, the heat cool off. That's the part about being in the mop. You can walk around anywhere. Right. Like, anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. all the time. Literally anywhere. Um, so this is, I don't know if this was, I said 25. So this is, so Al Capone is now in charge of the, the mob and he is 25 years old. Um, I just lost With an advisor mind. like Torio. Yeah. That's just going to help you so tremendously. That's been in it and knows all right. the stuff. Holy crap. Um, and he's away in Italy for a while. So, I mean, immediately he's, that's it. It's not like he can call him on a cell phone and go, hey, what do I fucking do about this? Like, if he's in Italy, you're, you're that's it. It's just you. Uh, so, incidentally, September of 1925 would bring about the first time a mobster used a Thompson submachine gun or a Tommy gun in public. I wanted to give a little information on the Tommy gun, and I spoke with resident gun expert and Mobby's audio expert, James, to ask him about it and what I like to refer to as my gun talks with James. Every time there's a gun. I'm, hey, James. 
I'm sure he loved that. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, so he actually sent me an article from my militaryhistorynow.com that I didn't find in my own research. Uh, it had really good information. I don't know how the fuck I missed it, but he found it immediately. Um, I know he thought, what a fucking dumbass. All I did was search for it. I Googled it. I just Googled <laughs> just it. Same thing I did, but I didn't find it. Uh, so you have James to thank for this information. The Tommy gun was originally designed for military use, which didn't pan out as expected. And then it became available for personal purchase, marketed as an anti-bandit weapon. <laughs> anti-bandit. <laughs> Talk this about makes me think of Home Alone. Like, right? okay. <laughs> fucking Tommy anti-bandit. Uh, but with a price tag of $200, which is about $3,500 today, the general public couldn't fucking afford a Tommy gun. Also, good. who the fuck needs a Tommy gun to stop someone from breaking into your house? I think a pistol would be just fine. Right. I don't think you need a fucking Tommy gun. Or a fucking shotgun. I don't know. Something. Guess who doesn't know a lot about guns? Me. Um, enter the mafia, who obviously could afford them. And they could see the benefit of a fully automatic machine gun that can shoot a lot of people very quickly. Uh, the earliest models were capable of shooting at speeds up to 1,500 rounds per minute. What? Per minute. And could empty a 100-round drum magazine in four seconds. Um, why? <laughs> because they want to kill a lot of people. What the fuck? Very quickly. We're stupid. Humans are fucking stupid. <laughs> They're so, so stupid. fucking stupid. You're not wrong. <laughs> Uh, in 1939, Time Magazine called the Tommy gun, quote, the deadliest weapon, pound for pound, ever devised by man. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> that was in 1939. Wait, guys, there's more to come. Uh, throughout 1926, Bugs Moran and Jaime Weiss tried again and again to assassinate Al Capone, who was now in charge of the Chicago outfit. The biggest attempt came in late September when Capone was having lunch at the Hawthorne restaurant. A 10-car caravan filled with Weiss's men, came around the corner and opened fire on the Hawthorne. Now, it said at first they shot blanks, but Capone's bodyguard realized that more would be coming and fucking knocked Al Capone to the ground and held him down while the men with the real bullets shot up the whole block. One gunman even got out, came to the doorway of the Hawthorne, and sprayed the interior with bullets as well. That's ballsy, too, because you have all these other cars that are shooting at the same place you're right, shooting. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that guy. And the thing about the, the weapons that they're using, how does anybody get lived through that? I don't know. But in less than 10 minutes, the Hawthorne was hit with 5,000 bullets. Oh, God. You think the, the, the place would just, like, crumble to the ground? Just bloop? Yeah. You would think. And the building was destroyed. But somehow, no one was killed. Apparently, these guys are fucking stormtroopers. They just fucking can't shoot anything. They're like, we shot everything and missed everybody. So, like, everybody gets on the ground and they're just still shooting straight up. So, it's yeah, just I like, oh, I just hit the microphone. Oh, so, they're just like, you guys can't see my arm, but it's like, blah, 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 blah. and then. And that's it. And that's it. And then. That's I, fucking. The guy nice. apparently came in and sprayed up. I'd be like, you're in so much. I'd be so scared after that. Right. Oh, yeah. You You're just tried trouble. to hit fucking Al Capone and missed... Ev you didn't even take out any of his men. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How is that possible? I, it happened. I don't know. I don't. I, again, these guys were not... They're stormtroopers. They fucking shot nothing. So, I wonder, do, like, the civilians know who he is? 
Yeah, at so this I time. Mean, I mean, they do, but like I, because I, I, I think he'd walk in the store and you'd be like, "We're fucking leaving, right? We're leaving." But he did, he did, and I, I have a couple of things in here. Again, I couldn't get into all of it because it's just too much. But he did things for people. Like there was a woman that talked about uh, on the documentary. She talked about how something spilled on her dress or something, and she was like a waitress, you know, where it, one of the um, prohibition uh, speakeasies, and he like gave her a hundred dollars or something or fifty dollars to go get a new dress okay which is a lot of money then so i mean yeah you know he wanted to project that he was this good person again whether or not that's because he was a good person or because that just helped his image you know whatever it was but he did do good things but when we talked about that with nathan leopold you fucking kidnapped a kid murdered him Tried to fucking get money after you murdered him, and then you go and do these good things in prison. I don't get it. Who knows if it's because you're a good person or if it's because you know it'll get you out of jail, you know, right. whatever it is. But so he did do good things, and we and I like I said, I talked very briefly about a couple of them in here, but I mean, I don't know, it was an enigma. Mm-hmm. So one person was injured in this shooting, and Capone paid their hospital bills, and then he set his sights on Weiss. <sighs> In the fall of 1926, Capone had his men rent rooms overlooking the Moran Weiss headquarters. They watched and waited until they saw Weiss crossing the street in front of the florist shop where O'Banion was murdered two years earlier. And they opened fire. Three were wounded, and Weiss was killed in the attack, along oh. with a man named Patrick Murray, and literally in the fucking street. Wow. Um, and that's the thing, though. You think you wouldn't be so out in the open... Like, you'd be a little more... I mean, you'd think, but I think they just... Secretive about what you're doing. That first of all, we also, we talked, and I don't know if I mentioned it in here now, but we did talk about... Leopold and Loeb was not exactly at this time, but same time frame. It, I mean, the, we already talked about how inept, inept the police were. Yeah. They telegraphed every fucking move they made in the paper. Every move they made. It was ridiculous. So, I mean, I think that... You know, and then then you're talking about inept people. Then you're talking about if there's people on the payroll. I mean, there's just a lot happening. And there are gangsters, obviously, from other areas. They're bringing in Frankie Yale, who's from New York. We're going to talk about some St. Louis gangsters as well. So they're bringing in people from other areas to do things. Which once those people are gone, it's the fucking 20s. The cops aren't going to fucking go to Missouri to find somebody or fucking to New York to find right. somebody, you know. So I think that's part of it, too. And then, like... um, like for Al Capone, he'd do something and then he'd lay low. So he'd go stay in Florida. He had a home in Florida. He'd go stay there or go stay somewhere else until everything died down. They're on to somebody else. And then he'd come back. So I think they kind of had a had a way of doing it in the 20s. I don't know that it would work the same way today. But right. that's how it worked then at least. Oh, my gosh. Um, so... so Weiss was killed in the attack, and a man named Patrick Murray was killed as well, and that left Bugs Moran in charge of the Northside gang. The chief of police was quoted as saying, quote, we knew it was coming sooner or later, and it isn't over. I fully expect there will be a reprisal, and then a counter-reprisal, and so on. These beer feuds go in an endless, vicious cycle. I don't want to encourage the business, but if somebody has to be killed, it's a good thing the gangsters are murdering themselves off. It saves trouble for the police. Well, that's true. <laughs> Makes sense. Because that's crazy, too, to think that you know who these people are and what they're doing and you just can't fucking do anything about it. Right, right. And a lot of, I mean, like, a lot of these, too, like, we'll, we'll talk about in the Valentine's Day Massacre, you know, people people being arrested and then 
nothing those all these are still unsolved even though everyone knows what happened everybody knows who did it or you know there's always more than one person that could have done it but everybody knows and then nothing ever happens so technically they're unsolved but we know what happened now capone denied involvement in the attack and he set up another peace agreement with moran and the other leaders i think that's kind of what it sounded like and it alluded to the peace agreement and i'm like but that's done so I think he kind of brokered another deal. Moran, for his part, was hijacking the mob's whiskey shipments that were coming into Chicago. So in Canada, they would make it. It would come into Detroit and then come to Chicago. So he's hijacking these shipments and pissing Al Capone off. So uh, according to the Chicago Tribune, Moran was attempting to take advantage of Capone being away in Miami. So he'd gone to his house in Miami and take over one of the most prized booze territories in the city, the 20th Ward. Uh, there was a political race happening in this ward as well, in which Capone had become allies with one of the candidates. Capone, not one to tolerate people interfering with his business or money, had had enough of Moran's bullshit, so he planned his most infamous crime, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. <laughs> now, in the a and &E biography on Al Capone, author Lawrence Burgreen describes this hit as, quote, one of the most fascinating and complicated hits in the history of gangland in this country, probably also the most celebrated. What? Of course, you know I'm all about the movies and the movie recommendations. I really need to go through and make a list. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that eventually, but I'm going to have to listen to every episode, and that takes time, and my kids keep getting sick and shit like that. So um, I there are lots of movies that feature the exploits of Al Capone. Uh, so the one I'm going to mention is not, you know, like, Capone with Tom Hardy and all those. I'm sure those are fabulous, but we're going to talk about a little movie that's fucking black and white. Uh, it features two musicians played by Tony Curtis, who was incredibly fucking handsome uh, back then. Uh, he's gone now, but and Jack Lemmon. It was amazing. Uh, who witnessed the St. Valentine's Day massacre and they go into hiding to save their lives. Hilarity ensues as the men dress in drag and join an all-woman band where they meet Sugar Cane, played by the beautiful and talented and my favorite Marilyn Monroe. It is one of my all-time favorite movies. And while it's a fictional account, it's still a must-watch. So if you haven't, check out Some Like It Hot. So she was somewhat in had ties to the mob then? She actually did, but that's not the movie is just it's two actors. Oh, you mean in the in the movie she did? Just in real, real life. Real? Yeah, I think she did. I mean, I think she had ties through um like Sinatra and stuff. Oh, but, okay. But yeah, this not to this. So she, so the movie was um Tony Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, they are they walk into a gar the garage where it's happening. And they get, they see the fucking massacre happen and then they're like, oh fuck. And they get seen as witnesses. So everybody's looking for them. So everyone's looking for two musicians. So they end up trying to find a job somewhere far away. So they find this, this girl's band needs two musicians that play, happen to play their instruments. So they join this band that's going to Florida. And so they're on this train and all the women are there on the train and they're dressed like women and it's fucking hilarious. And then they meet Marilyn Monroe. And of course, the handsome Tony Curtis falls in love with Marilyn Monroe. You know, it's the whole thing. But it's so funny. It's so good. It, it's it's one of my favorite movies of all time. That's crazy. I have so not seen good. that. I have to watch it's that. My, and I do. I like Marilyn Monroe movies. I, I've watched quite a few of them, but it's my favorite. So do people think that her death has anything to do with the mob? Uh, we'll talk about that eventually. Okay. We will be covering that because it's the greatest sadness in my life that Morbid covered it, but it was on their Patreon and I couldn't afford to. Oh, be okay, so I okay. To it, so um, 
it it's I was like, oh, I want to hear them cover Marilyn Monroe. She's my favorite. We have the we have the same birthday. Oh my god! I have put my hands where her hands were at Man's Chinese Theater, and our, my hands fit perfectly where her hands. That's were. That's so fucking awesome. Yeah. So. Um, All right. Anyway. Back to the mob. So, on the morning of February 14th, 1929, Bugs Moran's men were waiting at his warehouse for a shipment of whiskey to arrive. Bugs wasn't there yet when two men dressed as police officers entered the warehouse through an alley. Moran's men believed they were being raided, and they turned to face the brick wall, putting their hands up as they did. The police officers gave the signal, and two or three more men entered through the front of the warehouse, carrying Tommy guns and a shotgun. They opened fire into the backs of Moran's men. Seven men died in the warehouse that day. Dr. Reinhardt H. Schwimmer, who was not in the mob, he just liked to fucking hang out with them. I think it made him feel like tough to hang out with the mob. Um, Peter, I think it's Gussenberg, Albert R. Weinshank, Adam Heyer, John May. I think John May is the other one who's also not in the mob. I think he was like a mechanic and had done work for, for Bugs and his men. Uh, James Clark, which was Bugs Moran's brother-in-law, and Frank Gussenberg. So him, Frank and Peter are brothers. Now, Frank died three hours after being shot. Uh, he died in the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Uh, at least an hour of that time was spent refusing to give any information about his killers because, you know, mob shit. The autopsy reports are available online along with crime scene photos. Uh, 70 shell casings were found at the scene, according to some sources. And the coroner's reports I found online show that most of the men were shot 9 to 11 times. With Schwimmer having around 25 entering exit wounds because he was shot with shotgun pellets. Jeez. Uh, interestingly, a dog was tied up in the back of the warehouse, and he wasn't killed. A detective was quoted. They're like, we're not going to kill a dog. Right? Who kills dogs? It's awful. <laughs> it's like the people now that are like, I can't watch a movie with a dog dying. And they'll watch a movie like fucking Saw. Jeffrey Dahmer. Or Hostel, right, yeah, right. And you're like, like, okay. okay. <laughs> um, so a detective was quoted in the Chicago Tribune as having said, quote, seven men died like dogs, but the dog lives. All right. Which I just was like, ooh, that kind of puts it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Like that, mm-hmm. I, the idea that it matters if the dog dies, not if the people die. I was like, ooh, okay. Um, but they just—they weren't even thinking about the fucking stupid dog. No, they're like, fucking dog, fucking gives a shit. The and dogs are gonna fucking I tell people who we are. One thing I read said the dog eventually ended up having to be put down, like because of I guess all of the trauma of what happened that day and probably the fear from the you know everything or whatever the was the assumption. It, yeah. And I'm sure there's lots of people that are like, oh my God, that poor dog. I know, right? Shut up. Seven people were (laughs) fucking... Uh, A witness named Alphonsine Morin told detectives that after hearing the gunshots, she saw two or three men come out of the warehouse with their arms in the air and two policemen behind them with guns pointed at their backs. Police believed this was in case they ran into trouble coming out of the warehouse, so it looked like gunfire had erupted during a raid and then the police had taken the shooters into custody. Morin also stated that she believed she could identify the driver... In the fucking paper is where I found this. Just in the fucking newspaper. Are you fucking crazy? Like, what? Wait a minute. Who the fuck reported this? That guy should be fired. Well, um, <laughs> you're dead now. And she believes she had rented a room to the men that looked out into the front of the garage, which makes sense. Shut this is what they up, did Sally. <laughs> what shut are you? up. You, shut, you can't even fucking. And she's just like, I can't even stop talking. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't do it, it just keeps coming out. I saw everyone in the mob and I know all of them. Shut up. She's talking to the guy and then she's like, are you a police officer? He's like, no, I'm a reporter. And she's like, fuck, 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 fuck. What the fuck? Please don't put that in there. I need to see your badge. Oh, ma'am, I'm a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And she was like, oh. And everything you said, I already released it. It's already out there. Great. I'm going to go pack my bags now because I have to leave. 
Um, so Marin would later receive a threatening letter. Oh, a few days later, we'll receive a threatening letter and she would flee Chicago with her two young daughters. Duh! Two young fucking daughters and you're talking to the fucking newspaper about the goddamn mob. And it's like not even like you don't know that it's the mob. It's just like some people and you think you're helping. You know it's the mob. And you're still talking. You know. I'm uncomfortable enough talking about it right now and they're all dead! (laughs) Fuck. I'm not afraid of Al Capone because he's dead. Otherwise, I'd be shitting my pants. We wouldn't be having this conversation. We would be talking about something else. Not this. Uh, Another episode about Leopold and Loeb because I can't talk about the mob. Uh, so the letter was signed the gang and it included a postscript that said you better shut your mouth okay Okay. i will yes you're right another letter was sent to a mrs landsman who had run to the garage after hearing the shots and one thing said she'd seen the shooters leave and something later said she hadn't so i assume that was again to like what is wrong with women in the 19 what year are are you reporting this why why but the woman's like i heard shots so i ran to the garage why the fuck would you do that can't you heard shots in there i want to kind of go anywhere near that (laughs) i'm gonna go further away from that and i am i am uh what sort i am nosy yeah but i'm not going to the garage she she would have been a spooky human she'd be the person who's here listening to the podcast like oh i'd run into that fucking garage Um, I'm going to run into the garage like three hours later, maybe, like when they're gone, then I'm going to run into the garage. <laughs> this, is, this is a 1920s human who was like, I'm going to solve this crime. Uh, so her letter was accidentally sent to Alphonsine Morin's house. So she didn't fucking get it. So this woman has no fucking clue that they're like, shut your fucking mouth. But hers said, quote, please keep your mouth shut or you know what will happen to both of you, meaning her and her husband. Keep out of our troubles. Don't forget. And it was signed, shy boys, like C-H-I, like Chicago. Fuck that. Can you imagine being the lady that got it and you're like, shit, what did I do? Oh my God. She was like, I'm not even telling that bitch because I'm already at the train station. Yeah. Sorry. I don't even have anything to do with this. <laughs> oh my God. So they, I mean, literally every fucking thing they did, even down to the fact that they've got a witness who can say all this stuff is in her names in the fucking paper. Later, they got a little bit smarter. But it was still everything was in the paper. And I just was like, oh, my God, there's so much fucking information. And then I put something in and go, they don't ever talk about this guy again. I don't know what happened. So Al Capone was staying at his home in Florida, as I mentioned at the time. And he had a solid alibi. Obviously, he was in fucking Florida. So there's that. He couldn't make it to Chicago in that amount of time. But he'd been in a meeting with a district attorney in Miami about, you know, some other fucking charges he had. In the biography on A&E, it was theorized that one of Bugs' men that looked like Bugs Moran was also dressed the way Bugs always dressed. They said he wore a light overcoat and a dark brown fedora. And the shooters probably thought it was him that entered the garage last. Oh. So they thought, oh, he's in there now. Let's make the, let's do the hit. But he wasn't in there yet. Um, I fucked it up. Right, right. And then... I think I talk about more about it later. So uh, detectives interviewed the wives of the victims, but much like their interviews with Frank, again, I think it's Gussenberg, nothing was gained. The wives either feigned ignorance of their husband's illegal activities or they really were in the dark about what they were up to. But there was at least one highlight in their conversations with police. This was when both of Frank Gussenberg's wives came in to speak with detectives. I was like, wait, what? Uh, the women were naturally hostile with each other. One claiming to have been married to Frank for five years, the other for three. Oh, shit. Uh, they did agree that Frank was a good man and couldn't have been the robber and burglar that police said he was. <laughs> it was like, wait, 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 wait. Both of his wives. Can you imagine having that much money 
And having enough time. You're in the fucking mob. Right. I feel like you're busy. Right. And you have two wives, so you were paying for two places. Right. Where some of them even had fucking children with these women. You're right. Like, what the? How could you handle all that? The stress. The anxiety. Who the fuck wants two wives? <laughs> Are you kidding? I wouldn't want two husbands. Uh, but think no, about... Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. You're talking about 19... No, no, listen. Okay. You're talking about 1920s, where women can't have a fucking job. No. So, of course, your house is clean anyway. Because you have to, or he's gonna fucking beat your ass. Well, of course they want two wives. That's what I mean. But I mean, like, like I just feel like you know that they're like, fuck, your house is already clean. It's not like you need another wife to help clean because that's all she's gonna do. Because you're gonna beat her if she doesn't. She's taking care of the kids because she has to, or you're gonna beat her if she doesn't. Why do you need another woman? You just have another woman fucking nagging you. Why would you want another spouse? I want more than one wife because I live in the 2020s. Yep, that's true. And I realize that the value of women is different than they realized it was in the 1920s. That's true. I see. I see. All right. I'll give you that. Because I'm like, uh, if men are smart, they want all. Yeah. Can I have 52 wives? Like back then, now you've got more than one woman Um, that knows what you're fucking up to. I wonder if a lot of those women don't. Like maybe they figure it out on their own. So it's like this unspoken thing that I know that you know that I know you know. Yeah. I don't think but they're I in feel the like business. Probably I think they probably don't. Maybe I think, I think they know. You think they talk about? I don't it? think they Especially talk about the it. value of women back then. They're not telling their fucking wives what they're exactly. doing because they're, I don't like, think they're no, talking bitch. about it. But I think they. When your husband's all of a sudden coming home with fucking furs for you and shit, you're like, mm, mm. that's weird. I'll turn my doing? head. And then it's the mob. It's not like he's mm. on fucking OnlyFans right. or selling his fucking <laughs> boxers. He's he's in the mob. <laughs> now you'd go. What are you up to? Then you were like, oh, you're in the mob. It's the mob. I know what it is. So I wouldn't ask. I'm not going to ask. If you start bringing home furs later, I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to be like, thanks, wife. (laughs) Don't tell me anything. You're going to know because you're in the business. (laughs) I am way too lazy to do this shit. (laughs) If I kill somebody, it is going to be in a fit of rage. It is not going to be because I planned out a massacre. Oh, no. I couldn't handle that. I can't barely handle when I have dreams that I've killed someone. You wake up in the morning, you're like, ah! 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 and I have the dream sometimes where I never have the dream where I'm actually like in the process of killing the person. Mm-hmm. It's always that, like it's happened and I wake up in my dream mm-hmm. and it's the next morning and I'm like, oh my God, was it a dream? It wasn't a dream. It was real. Like, oh my God. And whoever it is and trying to figure out like, what do I do next? And then waking up and just being like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Oh, shit. I, I don't think I've ever had that dream. My- you never had a dream of that you've killed someone? I'm no, I'm always either running from zombies, but I'm never like it's never like a scary dream. I'm always just like, oh fucking zombies again. <laughs> or I'm getting ready to have sex with like Gerard Butler and then my kids wake me up. You're like, you fuck like, you! You bastards! That was my chance. <laughs> oh. I love you guys, but get the fuck out. And then I go back to sleep and I'm like, oh look at zombies again. It's so fucking <laughs> <laughs> or nothing, you know, whatever. But it's never Jerry waiting for me where I left him. Damn it. It's fucking always. I had sex with uh, Channing Tatum once Ooh. a long time ago when, like, Magic Mike was coming out. Like, we actually did the deed. I, I don't in, think that. In a dream. In a dream. Yeah. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I would be telling There was that story. Right, I, I would be detail. telling that story every day. I made my own TikTok where I just talked about my <laughs> This is going to get Channing Tatum. He's going to go, wait a minute. I don't think that's I didn't have it. Everyone thinks I it did, married. so you might as well do it now. Right. It's fine. But that I don't think that's ever happened with anyone else. No. Like, it's, you just always wake up or always. your brain's waking you up right before. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> Come on. Uh, right there. Or, or with, um, I had a dream where... <laughs> 
<laughs> it was the actors, not the characters. But uh, I was getting ready to do my thing with Sam and Dean Winchester. But it was the it was the actor. It was Jensen and Jared. It was not the characters because that's fucked up, and I'm not interested. But, but and my kids woke brothers. me up, and I was like. God damn it! My husband's like, what? And I was like, you don't understand. I was getting ready to have sex with Jared. And Jed said, he was just like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> was it. They're both happily married. That was my only shot. Never going to be able to dream that again. Fucking over. <laughs> I've had a few sex dreams in my days. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so the police had a few ideas about what could have led to the massacre. And this is where it got so complicated. There's so much happening that I was trying to narrow it down. And hopefully I did a good job, guys. So uh, they first followed the idea that the massacre was a result of the booze hijackings being orchestrated by the Moran gang. I, I said booze was made by the distillers in Canada, brought into the U.S. through the booze runners in Detroit. So police quickly found a witness who had noted the first three numbers of the getaway car's license plate. I think it said it was 321, but it was kind of blurry. So it, looked, it could have been 331. Not that that matters, but... Uh, after it, it collided with his truck in a rush to the scene. So they like hit this guy's truck. I thought it was when they were leaving. No, it was when they were going there. Oh, shit. I don't know if they were fucking late because someone had to poop or what. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it happens to us a lot in our house. So uh, when he got out of his car to like give the other cars information or whatever, they like waved him away, which holy fuck. What like what if he was some dick that was like get the fuck over here you hit my car it's the fucking mob and they're like okay or he knew maybe he just knew and was like oh I recognize you I gotta go yeah um this is fine it's good so they literally waved him off and then went in and fucking shot up the building <laughs> oh my so he was standing there trying to like steal himself up and he heard gunshots and was like nope and went got back in his he's car. like it's fine don't worry about the car don't worry about the dents you know what care. I'll fix it thanks yeah um. So the getaway car, which resembled a detective bureau squad car, so it looks like a cop car, had a broken windshield, and the left rear fender was torn off. The driver was missing one of his front teeth, the guy said. Um, you know, I don't know that that ever came back in. I'm pretty sure I forgot to delete that, but they did say he was missing one of his front teeth. A $25,000 reward was offered, and a crackdown on booze and gambling activities was put in place. So, you know, their prohibition is in effect... They know this shit's happening. So I think, you know, either they're not figuring out where it is or they're letting some of it slide, probably getting paid. Yeah, duh. Um, But now they've said, we're going to crack down on this. That's it. We're stopping it. Then why is the fucking law there if you're not stopping it in the first place? Whatever. Um, Because Charlie's getting paid under the table. Everybody's making money. Uh, So according to the Chicago Tribune, Bugs Moran, who was in hiding sent word to the chief of police that, quote, we don't know what brought it on. We're facing an enemy in the dark. But according to the Miami News, who was quoting the Herald and Examiner, Moran said, quote, there is only one gang that kills like that. One gang that would line up seven men against a wall and then shoot them down through the back. And that is the Al Capone gang. Oof. Which I read in another place that they said that Al Capone responded to that by saying, well, there's only one gang who would do that. It's the Moran gang. But I could not find anything to substantiate that. I found this in the paper. So it's in the paper. It's in the paper. I'm assuming he said it. Who knows? Because journalists were, I mean, they said everything. So he probably didn't really say it. As police searched car licenses in the Chicago area, starting with that 321, one in particular caught their attention. License 3216... Oh, this is the one that was blurry, too. This one was blurry, too. 693 was the end of it. I, and it was blurry, so... Uh, it had been issued to the Coffee, Tea, Butter, and Egg Drivers and Salesman's Union. 
coffee, tea, butter, and egg drivers, and salesmen's union. Okay? <laughs> this was notable because the killing of John Clay, who was an executive of the laundry and dye house chauffeurs union, so again, drivers, uh, had been attributed to a factional fight over union control. Okay. Moran's gang had been trying to seize control of the laundry and dye house chauffeurs union, and John Clay had stood in their way. The investigation would reveal that Moran had Clay killed to get his hands on the Dyer's Union Treasury Fund, which held $300,000. Oh, shit. Clay's replacement had even been threatened by Moran in an attempt to keep him from accepting the position. Because he wasn't or whatever. So there was a lot more like involved in that. I tried to pare it down to like just the basics. Yeah. But, um, about four days after the murders leads in Detroit and Canada dried up and there was no further suspicion on the distillers, or the booze runners the papers didn't report details of the involvement of the two men. They said police were looking for, but it was reported that police were trying to find Jack McGurn and David Burns. So we're going to talk a little bit more about their involvement uh, as we go. Both had been targeted by Moran's gang at some point with Burns being left for dead with seven fucking bullets in him. Obviously, he survived. His police are looking for him. But he doesn't really come up again in the papers, so I'm not really sure where that went. But Jack McGurn, we're going to talk more about. On Thursday, February 21st, the headline read, quote, murder car found burning. Oh. My favorite quote from the article? Quote, the discovery last night of the automobile believed to have been used in the Moran gang massacre produced clues, spelt C-L-E-W-S, names, identifications, and arrests, and the belief the right trail had been found as the eyeglasses led to the exposure of Leopold and Loeb. What? Like, oh, look at that. What a little callback. Um, so the 1927 Cadillac touring car had been found burning in a garage and beforehand had been cut apart using a saw, an axe, and an acetylene torch. The person that had rented the car had given an address of 1859 West North Avenue, a known machine gunner's nest. So again, we know we're talking about the mob. We already do, but still. A Luger pistol and the wooden grips of another pistol were found at the scene, but both had been handled by so many people, it was just no use trying to get fingerprints off of them. The gar- and are they doing fingerprints at that time? I mean, it said in the paper. Okay. So, yeah, I assume so. Uh, the garage where the car was found was rented out two days before the massacre by a Frank Rogers, likely a pseudonym. The same garage had run out in January by a man named Claude Screwy Maddox, <laughs> a former St. Louis gangster with the Egan's Rats gang, who had also been shot in the back over a fight concerning union support for political candidates. So back to the union stuff again. Now, Maddox, the St. Louis gangster, was a known friend of Jack McGurn and David Bates. So I guess that's where they came in. Maddox had been seen a few days before the car was found, leaving the garage where it was found with two other men, Raymond Schulte and Tony Capizio. All three were wearing grease-covered overalls as though they'd been working on a car. Clive Maddox had been arrested a month prior at 1859 West North Avenue, the same address given by the man that rented the garage where the car was found. So it kind of all ties back in. Now, this arrest would later serve as his alibi for the Valentine's Day massacre as he was in court on Valentine's Day during the massacre. So he wasn't in the building. Doesn't mean he wasn't involved. Uh, on February 24th, it was reported that police had found evidence that Rocco Belcastro and Danny Vallow had been two of the perpetrators of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Belcastro had a connection to the men involved with the car or the garage where it was found. I'm not sure which. Um, he made his way on the suspect list when a witness stated that one of the men that came out of the garage with his hands up was missing his right pinky finger, which Belcastro was. Oh, uh, and that's a pretty big, yeah, yeah. that's a pretty big marker. <clears throat> but... He kind of falls out at some point. Like they mention him a few times, and then I don't, I don't know where he goes. But that's just it. So, 
don't know if maybe they never maybe catch him or uh, both Buck Astor and Val had been part of the Valley Street Gang, which had been absorbed into the Capone organization. A witness that had been close enough to hear the men talking as they got into the car heard Bel Castro say, all right, Mac, please believe that Mac referred to Jack. Maybe his name is Mac Gurn and not Mick Gurn, but I don't know how I've been saying it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, so on February 26th, official request was made for the arrest of 17 men in connection with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Those men were Claude Maddox a.k.a. Johnny Moore, a.k.a. whatever I call them, Screwy or whatever, a former St. Louis gangster. Tony Capizio, a.k.a. Tough Tony, the owner of the Circus Cafe, which was located next to the Machine Gunner's Nest and was thought to be where some of the planning for the massacre had taken place. Jack McGurn, notorious gunman and follower of Al Capone, who had been twice wounded by the Moran gang. Joseph Lalordo, whose brother was the former bodyguard of one of Capone's lieutenants. John or Raymond Schulte, a.k.a. Johnny Shocker, <laughs> a gunman he's one of the guys that was seen coming out of the garage with uh, Maddox Danny Vallow Rocco Finelli Tony Barone a beer hustler Rocco Belcastro Frankie Diamond a lieutenant of Al Capone Rocco Griffo which is one of Vallow's men uh, Sam and Joe Aiello who were enemies of Capone and it sounds like they were wanted in two different hits and then police figured out they were behind the hits like during the investigation so I don't think they were part of the Valentine's Day match oh, okay. they were enemies of Capone's unless they just kind of came together for this I'm not sure William I don't know if it was Rode R-O-D-E or Reed R-E-D-E I think it was O-D-E but uh, again bl- uh, blurry newspapers uh, aka Boxcars who was a bartender at the Circus Cafe Charlie Jackal uh, a former follower of Joseph Saltis, whose territory had been seized by Al Capone, Frank Malici, and Georgie King, one of Frank Diamond's men. So 17 people. Shit. <clears throat> On February, not including Capone. Not including Capone. Of course not, because he wasn't there. He had an alibi. On February 28th, it was reported that photos of two former members of the Egan's Rats gang were positively identified by a witness. Police stated that Claude Maddox would have introduced them to the Valley gang. So that's how they make their way in. It's stated that Jack McGurn was a suspect from the moment that Frank Gussenberg was found crawling away from the other victims of the massacre because the Gussenberg brothers had attempted to kill McGurn twice. So that's where McGurn comes in. Two witnesses picked him out of a lineup as the one of the shooters from the garage. One witness was a young man who saw McGurn enter the garage through the alleyway dressed as a policeman and saw him exit after the shooting. Can you imagine being a witness for that? I would be like, no, thank you. Right. I'm, nope. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I would like to not do shit. that. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. Um, it would later come out that the man was homeless and was giving information in exchange for food and a place to sleep. So it kind of made it seem like they didn't think he was really telling the truth. Okay. Uh, which makes sense for where we go later. Uh, he pointed the finger. He also pointed the finger, I guess, at John Scalise, who was apparently missing an eye and had an alibi. And Rocco Finelli, who wore extremely thick glasses and also had an alibi. The suggestion in the papers is that the two men with trouble seeing wouldn't be likely choices for this kind of crime. Um, so the other witness was a woman who had been horseback riding in the park and then like I guess they saw some people and someone who was with her was like do you know who that is and pointed out the gangsters over there wherever they were in the fucking park I don't know and then she had been in the area of the garage the morning of the 14th and saw those same men leaving the garage which again like you said uh, no nope Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I didn't see, I didn't see shit uh, Jack McGurn and Rocco Finelli were arrested and they were charged with seven counts of murder McGurn's alibi was that he was holed up in a hotel with his girlfriend during the murders and hadn't left the hotel. His girlfriend, Louise, corroborated his alibi. Of course she did. Of course she did. Michael Favis, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, and Samuel Laverde were also arrested and charged with being accessories after the fact. I didn't find anything else on what happened to them, but it's safe to say probably not much, if anything. 
On March 5th, three more men were named as participants in the actual massacre. Joseph Lalordo was said to have operated one of the machine guns. Frederick Burke, a.k.a. Killer, a.k.a. Thomas A. Camp, a.k.a. Joseph F. Lewis, formerly of the Egan's Rats gang in St. Louis. And that guy is a whole thing. There's a lot about him. And James Ray, who was also from the the St. Louis gang. So now it was stated that Burke and Ray were the two dressed as policemen. And this was their MO. There was lots of different examples of things that they had done where that, that was part of what they did. Um, police had changed their opinion about Jack McGurn, who now they now said was not one of the men that entered the garage. Uh, it was determined that McGurn had taken a trip to Miami to see Al Capone to get his blessing for the massacre and to get money to play Burke and Ray to come in dressed as police, which was, as I said, already part of their M.O., Uh, Police stated that he had learned the two St. Louis gangsters were paid $10,000 a piece to aid in the massacre. Shit. Now, I think that's interesting because it makes it sound like Capone didn't... Now, they're saying he went to plan this, but maybe he didn't plan it. Maybe he just sanctioned it. Right. So, I don't know which one of those things is correct, but... I'm sure that part's hard to prove. Yeah, exactly. Um, None of them are going to fucking talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's believed that since they didn't know Moran, because these guys are from St. Louis... They thought that all the men were there. They gave the signal for the shooters to come in in front of the garage. They probably were even told, like, this is what he wears. You'll know him because he's wearing these clothes. And they said, okay, everybody's here. And when the shooters came in, the men are facing the wall. So they, so they do that, that on purpose then? Do what Obviously, the guy's dressed like him just in case. I don't know. Maybe. You're fucking bait. I mean, he was running late. So I don't, I don't necessarily think, I think maybe it was a bit of luck that it worked out that way okay. maybe maybe not maybe he I'd be like, why are you wearing the same fucking shit i'm wearing i mean some stuff said that he uh that he drove past and they saw the cops going in they thought they were being raided so he just kept on going okay so i don't know if that's so true or not because again who's gonna fucking tell you that right so i don't know but uh once so when the shooters came in the men are facing away from them so they didn't know that moran wasn't there they're the ones who would recognize him and they always see his back and his clothes so or similar clothes on March 8th, it was announced that yet another man was arrested and charged with seven counts of murder, John Scalise, who was described as a Capone henchman. His same thing, too. Some of the stuff said Scalise, like an I at the end, and most of it said E, so I went with the E. Um, <clears throat> he was described as a Capone henchman. McGurn and Scalise were indicted, but Finelli was not. In mid-March, the charges against Finelli were dropped, and he was released. Oh. On May 1st, Scalise was released. He and two other men were murdered seven days later by Capone and his bodyguards because they planned to assassinate Capone. Or was uh, hit out on Capone and they were gonna oh. gonna take advantage of it. And Weren't they on his side? I mean... Before or no? I Apparently they weren't very loyal, yeah. I guess, is, is what it is. It's him and I don't know who the other men are that... The, the other men that they mentioned that were part of it weren't part of this whole St. Valentine's Massacre, so I didn't include their names because there's a lot of names as it is. Um, the three men, and it was until they told a story like basically one of his bodyguards pretended like he was against Capone to get them to confess to him that's what they were going to do, and then told Capone, you know, it was a whole thing. It was just too much to put. Oh shit! Um, the three men were brutally beaten to death with baseball bats before being shot with for good measure. Um, there are pictures of that. You can't see their like faces, but you can see like they're lying down and it's mm-hmm. kind of like at the angle, like from the feet kind of almost. Um, uh, on May 2nd, McGurn was released on bail because prosecutors weren't ready to proceed with the trial. On December 3rd, 1929, the charges against McGurn were dropped because the assistant state's attorney said they had enough to try McGurn and Scalise, but without Scalise, they didn't have enough on McGurn. 
No one has ever been tried in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but I think it's safe to say the police solved the crime. The suspects scattered, but one interesting fact is that Fred Burke from St. Louis, the one I said there's a lot about, fled to Michigan, where he killed a police officer named Charles Skelly 10 months after the Valentine's Massacre. He drove off after the murder, wrecked his car, and stole a different car. Came back to Missouri, which doesn't matter. We're not talking about him anymore. When Michigan police went through the car he wrecked, the papers inside led them to his hideout there in Michigan. In that hideout, they found two Tommy guns, which were tied to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So they do have those in Michigan uh, still. I think I don't probably know, in a fucking museum. museum. Have it. Yeah, it's it's. I think the police had it or something. So um, he was apprehended in 1931. He was charged with the murder in Michigan, found guilty, and sentenced to life in prison, where he died nine years later. Never charged for any involvement in the Valentine's Massacre. Uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the start of Al Capone's downfall. Between that and the Scalise hit, people really began to turn against him. There was a $50,000 hit out on him, which I mentioned. That's what Scalise had been trying to collect. And Capone knew he was in danger. So he arranged to be arrested in Philadelphia, believing that the only safe place for him was a jail, not in Chicago. Capone was arrested for carrying a concealed, unlicensed revolver, but he ended up with a sentence of a year in jail, which is longer than he intended. He tried bribery to get himself out early, but it didn't work. Capone was released from prison in March of 1930, and according to the A&E biography, he was named public enemy number one at that time. He was the first person named public enemy number one in the United States. Holy shit. Uh, on June 5th, 1931, Al Capone was indicted on 22 counts of income tax evasion from 1925 to 1929. He owed just over $215,000, which is almost $4 million today. He was found guilty and sentenced to 11 years in prison. He spent time in a federal prison in Atlanta before being sent to Alcatraz in August of 1934. What? Yeah. I did not know he went to Alcatraz. Yeah. Shit. Uh, in 1938, Al was diagnosed as suffering the degenerative effects of syphilis, which wouldn't have a cure for five more years. Left untreated, syphilis can cause brain damage, dementia, heart disease, blindness, seizures, and other health concerns. Al Capone was released from prison in November of 1939. He returned to Florida in March of 1940. On January Wait a minute. What? <clears throat> and you think about that too. How the fuck do you ever get out of prison again? Like they have you. You'd think if, they, if you go to Alcatraz, that's where you're going to fucking die. Like those are like the amazing. shit. Why would he go to Alcatraz? I mean, he probably went to Alcatraz because he's who he is. Right. But they can't but, keep him for it. It's yeah, not like you can go, true. we know you've done all these things. We have no proof of it. You've never been charged for it. I wonder you've, how many people he actually accident. murdered or just the ones that he sanctioned. He like murdered. he didn't I don't do. Think he did he, it. I think he was sanctioning yeah. it. Maybe the, the guys with the baseball bats. He or maybe when he was really that, young, like a fresh yeah. little, yeah. The, the 18, 19 year old pup. I think more of it was him sanctioning stuff. Yeah. But I'm sure he took part in some of that stuff because, I mean, he wasn't always the, the leader. Mm -hmm. But the leader doesn't have to do, they don't have to do shit. Right. They have people to do that for them. Like uh, like a Charles Manson. That's true. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll probably talk about him at some point too, huh? Yeah. Uh, on January 25th, 1947, at the age of 48, Al Capone died of cardiac arrest. He was buried in Chicago. If you're interested in mob history or just in the story, I already told Holly this, but the Mob Museum in Las Vegas has part of the actual fucking brick wall where these men were uh, killed in front of on display. Uh, so I'm ready for a trip. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm in. And that is the story of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. 
I don't have my joke. Fuck! Oh no! Gosh darn it. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going! So let's talk about... Um, Al-, Al Capone's dead. Syphilis. Oh, syphilis is going to lead into our next episode. So I'm sh- I'm sure that in Chicago there's probably a huge like mob museum that has ma- You know what? So I don't know. I did much. not look that up. I was really excited about the fucking brick wall and I'm mostly excited because it's in my favorite movie. That's probably where most of my excitement comes in. I'm not going to lie. Um, and now I want to watch like Boardwalk Empire, which I wanted to watch that before, but I have never watched it. So I was like, oh, I guess I need to add that to my list. <laughs> Holy shit. Soon. Okay, jokes with Holly. I got one already. <laughs> Good. I don't know the rest of these jokes. What do tofu and dildos have in common? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're. <laughs> I got myself. They are both meat substitutes. <laughs> Like it. Do you get it? Okay. <laughs> uh, as always, you can follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Mommy's Horror on Facebook, Mommy's Horror Podcast. You can send us your case suggestions or your listener stories to Mommy's Horror at gmail.com. You can join the Mommy's Discord for episode discussions. We are learning all of the cool things we can do on Discord and we're pretty excited to build our community there. Yeah. Uh, James has been doing some work in there. Thank you, James. Uh, you can support the podcast financially on Patreon. This is where we'll get funding for equipment upgrades and live events that will hopefully start in the springtime. Um, and if you want to support us for free, you can rate, review, subscribe, and share. We have like two reviews on Apple and maybe 15 ratings, and there are a lot fucking more of you uh, subscribing and listening than that. So if each of you gave us a rating and review, it would really help Please. push us in front of more people. Yes, and yes, yes, it, it really yes. does make a difference. So um, that's it for today. Sweet dreams, spookies.